destiny is left to the roll of the dice. Sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you lose it all. But every now and then, there are a series of incredible events that all work together to bring about either a colossal disaster or an incredible windfall. Some would call it coincident, others would call it luck, but still others would say, there's someone working behind the scenes, pulling the strings, working out our destiny. If this is your story, boy, are you going to really connect with Esther's. The time is not the 21st century, but the 5th century BC. The city's not Las Vegas, but Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah arrived in town a little over 100 years back. The move was orchestrated by God as loving discipline toward the Israelites because of their repeated disobedience. According to God's plan, after 70 years, the folks of Israel had an opportunity to head back home, and 50,000 of them did. The rest acclimated and integrated into the society and stayed. Now, the villain of this story is a guy named Haman. His hatred for the Jews stems from an incident that occurred over 500 years ago. God instructed the people of Israel under the reign of King Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites for their extreme and consistent wickedness. Two things stand out. One, they engaged in child sacrifices. Second, they were the first people who tried to stop Israel from entering the land of Canaan. They stood in direct opposition to the unfolding of God's upper story plan. A very bad idea. However, through Saul's disobedience, he didn't completely wipe out this deplorable nation, and 400 of them survived, including their king. Jewish tradition suggests that Haman is the direct descendant of King Agag. He is an Amalekite carrying a huge grudge and vendetta on his shoulders. It just so happens that Haman rolls lucky sevens and is promoted to a very influential position by the King Xerxes of Persia. With tons of power, he conjures up a plan to completely exterminate the Jews. Haman has it out for one particular Israelite. His name is Mordecai. Why? Mordecai won't bow down to him when he passes by, and it really gets his goat. He loathes Mordecai. Haman goes to King Xerxes and convinces him that the Israelites are bad people who need to be eliminated in the best interest of the kingdom. How will this be done? Haman issues an official decree marked by the king's signet ring that gives permission for the people in all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire to kill any Hebrew they come across on one particular day. Now, to give incentive for such violence, you were allowed to keep all of the possessions of the family you took out. Legalize looting. In one day, the people of Israel living in Persia will be gone. The king goes along with the plan, sealing the deal with his signet ring, pressed into hot wax that marks the documentation. This is an irreversible plan. It will happen. Not even the king can change it now. Haman can't wipe the smile off his face. The only thing left to determine is the exact day the Jews will be executed. Of all things, Haman decides to literally roll the dice to determine the day of their fate. 
Now, the Hebrew word for dice is pur. Haman rolls the pur. Adair 13th is the day, which is somewhere between the month of February and March on our calendar. Adair 13th is 11 months away. The irreversible edict goes out to all the households in Persia, including the Hebrews. We can only imagine the terror it created. The agony of waiting 11 months is like sitting on death row, waiting to be executed. Every day you wake up, you know you're one day closer to a horrific and humiliating death by one of your neighbors. The roll of the dice, the roll of Pur, lucky sevens for Haman, the short straw for Israel. In the lower story, the dice didn't fall in Israel's favor. No surprise to you by now, but there's another storyline developing at the same time that is going to eventually collide with Haman's story in a very big way. Through a series of unbelievable events, a young, orphaned Hebrew girl by the name of Esther becomes the new queen of Persia. She turns out to be the niece of none other than Mordecai. Talk about the luck of the draw. Talk about rolling lucky sevens. Now, it's important to note here, no one knows she is a Hebrew, let alone Mordecai's niece. We are now in the third month with only nine months to go before the Jews are exterminated and time is running out. Mordecai sends word to now Queen Esther, his niece, and tells her that she must go before the king and plea for mercy for her people before it's too late. In Esther's response, she reminds Uncle Mordecai that a queen can't just go into the presence of the king. She must be summoned. And if she's summoned, she must go. Remember how Vashti got the boot? It's hard to believe this in our day and time, but a queen could lose her very life or certainly her position for messing with this rule. Now listen to this. Mordecai responds back to her with some sort of knowledge about God's upper story plan for Israel. Israel must survive because God's plan depends upon it. He tells Esther that if she doesn't do this, some other plan will emerge to provide relief for Israel. This is a good reminder that we have a choice on whether or not we will align our lives to God's plan and receive the promise and the blessing. Either way, God's upper story will be told. Mordecai says these famous words to his now famous niece. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Maybe this isn't all the random roll of a dice after all. God has an upper story plan to keep Israel alive. He will do this one way or another. Mordecai is saying to Esther, maybe you were put here not just because you're outward beauty, but because God wants to use you to accomplish his plan. Esther hears her uncle out and then makes a firm decision. Here it is. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, as it turns out, lucky roll, the king receives her. The king is so pleased with Esther that he offers to give her up to half of his kingdom. Esther requests a dinner party the next evening with just the king and also Haman. It is here that she will tell the king what she wants. Haman gets the invitation, and he's on top of the world. A private dinner with the king and the queen. All the dice are rolling in his favor. 
now cockier than before, he decides that he can't wait nine more months to get Mordecai. So he constructs a 75-foot-high pole to impale Mordecai on. As bad luck would have it, that night the king goes to bed and can't sleep. He has one of his attendants read him the minutes of his rule and comes upon an event where Mordecai intercepted a plot to assassinate the king. The king realizes that he never did anything to acknowledge or reward Mordecai. So the next morning when Haman is showing up for work with an extra bounce in his step, the king asks Haman to drive Mordecai through town for a parade of one. Haman is mordecai Now it's time for dinner. More bad luck. Esther reveals her identity. Her request is for the king to save her people, the Israelites, from extinction. Now the king wants to know who would order such a thing. And Haman is exposed. The pole that was meant for Mordecai was now used on Haman that day. And to top it off, Mordecai is given Haman's position and his entire estate. But we still have the pressing issue of the irreversible edict. The king comes up with a plan that basically authorizes the Jews to defend themselves. Adair 13th finally arrives. The Israelites are ready and over the next few days defeat 75,800 people. Now upon this victory, Mordecai establishes an annual festival that the Jewish people still observe to this day. It is celebrated during the months of February and March, the same time as Adair the 13th. Ironically, it's called the Feast of Purim. Remember, pur means dice, so today we would call this the Feast of Dice. At this annual festival, food is given to one another, gifts are given to the poor, and the book of Esther is read aloud in its entirety. In the message, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 reads, people roll the dice, but God determines how the dice will fall. Even though God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, he's there. He is working above the scenes of Israel's life, ensuring things come out in their favor. God promised that the southern kingdom of Judah would return home to Jerusalem from exile and regather as a community in the land God gave them. It would be out of the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would be born, the one who will provide a way into a relationship with God. For all who choose him. Haman rolled the dice, but God determined how the dice would fall. The same promise holds true for Christians today. Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 tells us that all the Old Testament feasts were a shadow of what was to come in Christ. Sin rolled the dice and ordered the day of our death, but on the ultimate day of judgment, talked about in Revelation 20 and verse 14, Instead of us being thrown into the lake of fire, sin, death, and the devil are thrown instead. In Jesus, the tables are turned. We have also learned today that God wants us to stand up with courage, like Esther did, for what is right. That we too were called for such a time as this, to fulfill God's plan. But he also wants us to know that he is in control, working behind the scenes so that the dice ultimately fall in our favor. So it's really clear from the story of Esther that uh, 
the main message. God was very, very, very involved in the details of Esther and Mordecai's lives, uh, even when things were going south big time. And it was only afterward when they were able to look back, they were able to see God's masterful design, able to see his genius that was so breathtaking and so amazing. Uh, But they had to go through the process. And during that process, God was hidden. Uh, It was almost, it would have been easy to mistake God's hiddenness for his being absent totally. And that raises a question, and we want to look at that question this morning. Why is God so often hidden in the way that he works? Uh, God does break in and do miracles. We're people of faith, and we know that, and we never put a lid on God. But doesn't it seem, when it comes to our prayers and the way God works in our lives, that most often it's a hidden process? And sometimes that hidden process can take months, sometimes it can take years, and sometimes it's filled with pain and fear and anxiety. Where is God? Where is God? Why is he so hidden? And that's the question we're looking at this morning. And especially, think of it this way. If God, if God above everything else wants people to have faith in him, wants people to believe that he's really there, then why doesn't God show himself a little more clearly than he does. Why is he so hidden? Why doesn't God just write his name across the sky? You know, like those airplanes that, uh, with the steam or the uh, the jet engine smoke, whatever it is, they can write they can write messages in the sky. Why doesn't God write a big message across the sky that we can all see? Wouldn't that be proof? Hey, he really is there. Or what about probably even better? What if in a service like this? And God, the scripture says God has myriads of angels. There would be more than enough angels for God to dispatch one to every gathered church congregation that's meeting across the planet this morning. And wouldn't it be amazing if an angel visibly, suddenly came and stood beside me on the platform this morning? Wouldn't that, I mean, wouldn't that cause us to believe that God is there and to worship him? Something, a better step than that. What if Jesus just visibly appeared here this morning? That would be pretty convincing. What if on Monday morning of this week, when the UN meets, what if Jesus interrupted the proceedings, took on visible human form, took the mic, and then in front of the whole world with cable news and ABC and NBC and CBS, everybody there, Jesus took a few minutes to speak to the world to say that, yes, I'm there. And then what if to make it really convincing, he just threw in a miracle or two, right in front of the eyes of the world. Wouldn't that cause us all to believe? Wouldn't that cause us all to worship and love love God? Well, there is proof that a public appearance of God like that really would not create trust and worship. And we know this because God did show up one time very publicly and very visibly for three years in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And during those three years, Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. The greatest, he raised people from the dead. But at the end of those three years, were even the majority of the crowds that saw these miracles, were they ready to believe in him? 
Were they ready to worship him? Were they ready to trust him and love him? Well, no. In fact, the very opposite. Many of the people in those huge crowds, when it came down to the last night of Jesus' death, they were part of that other crowd that were calling for his crucifixion. Crucify him, crucify him. Even though they had seen such a public outward display of all the mighty things Jesus could do. Would people's responses be any different today in the 21st century if Jesus were to appear for another three years complete with all of his miracles? Well, I say no. (laughs) And for the very same reasons that his first century appearance for a great many people did not bring them to their knees and worship. When God appeared publicly in Jesus in that first century, now there's no question people were totally amazed by this. In fact, that's an understatement. But what were they amazed at? Or what, what, what did their amazement connect to? Well, it was, they were amazed at... They were amazed at the level of their five senses. Uh, It was a five senses, these natural senses that God gave us that connected with Jesus. But they did not connect with him, or at least most didn't, at that much deeper level of the heart. Now, what I'm saying is shown very clearly in one of Jesus' greatest miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 Imagine, 15,000 people, that's a big crowd. And there's only a boy there that has a little lunch with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Now, can you imagine how Jesus connected with the five senses of the people that day? Uh, Sight. It had to be something to see those those fish and loaves just multiplying, 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 and disciples going around to all the crowd and handing them out more than they could eat. They gathered up baskets full at the end that there was more than enough to eat. What a sight that would have been. And then the hearing. I mean, it had to be an electric moment, an electric crowd as everybody was excited and talking about something they had never seen the likes of this before. What about... um, the sense of touch. Well, they were all touching the bread and the fish that came miraculously. It was miracle fish and, and miracle bread. How about smell? Well, there's nothing that smells better than baked bread, in my opinion. And just you can imagine what it smelled like there. And then the only thing better than baked bread or smelling baked bread is tasting it. So all five senses were totally engaged. He had them in the palm of their hand, his hand that day. But when it was all said and done, the miracle was all said and done, what did their engagement with Jesus at the five cents level, what did that motivate in the people that day? Well, the scripture says in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king. You know what it stirred in them that day? Political ambition. Then they, they saw wow, this is the guy that can become, he, he can become our king and he can lead us on Rome and we can become the great nation that we were always meant to be. He wanted to turn the whole, the whole feeding of the 5,000. For them, it was a big political party, a big political campaign. But Jesus flat out refused. In fact, that's John chapter 6, verse 15 says, when he saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king, here's what Jesus did. 
So he went higher up into the hills by himself, alone. What did Jesus do? Well, God went and hid himself. He hid himself from that crowd. The next day, uh, Jesus came to that same crowd after he had refused their, you know, what they wanted him to do. And instead, he began to teach them that the whole point of his miracle was, was more than just to satisfy them with some, some physical bread. He presented himself to them that day as, I am the bread of God that has come down from heaven. And if any person will believe in me, he was talking to them about a brand new kind of kingdom, not a political kingdom, but he was talking to them, if you will come and put your faith in me, then the very kingdom of God, the very presence of God is going to open up and, you, and you're going to become part of a spiritual kingdom that is present inside your hearts. You're going to have the knowledge of God, a relationship with God. But you know what? Most of that crowd was absolutely disinterested in that dimension of things. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 66, 67, tells us that most of the crowd, after they heard him teach about the spiritual dimension of things, the deeper dimension of things, the crowd deserted Jesus. They walked away and they followed him no more. That crowd didn't show up again until the night of his crucifixion, and they were an angry, disillusioned crowd that Jesus wouldn't engage them like they wanted him to be engaged. He was talking about something deeper. In fact, Jesus on that occasion, so many people walked away, he turned to his 12, and he said, are you also going to walk away from me? Are you also going to leave? Well, they didn't. They stayed with him. But the crowd, the crowd... The majority of the people, they were fascinated with Jesus in the same way that we all get fascinated with ma magicians. Now, have you ever, how many of you have seen the movie, The Prestige? Seen that movie? Well, that's a great... If you haven't, I think you ought to go... This is one of the best uh, magician movies that has been produced in the last few years. And it's about this contest. I'm not going to give the movie away. But it's a contest between two very, very aggressive m magicians to see who can pack the theaters with all the thrills and the wonder and the entertainment and the excitement and the celebrity and all that kind of stuff with their, with their tricks of illusion. Um, it got a 7.1 on the uh, movie rating scale. So go get it. But how did he do that? Entertainment, applaud. That was the goal of the magician. But that is what, that's not the kind of relationship that Jesus created us to have with him. That's not what Jesus was after when he came into the world and made himself publicly known. Now, there were times when Jesus even refused to do miracles for this very reason. And one of those is in John chapter 7. Let me read it to you. John chapter 7. But soon it was time for the festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers urged him to go to Judea for the celebration. Go where your followers can see your miracles, they scoffed. You can't become a public figure if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, prove it to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now at this time, even Jesus' own brothers, James, who later be, they all be, later became believers. But at this time when Jesus was just starting his ministry... 
Even his own household, except even his own brothers and sisters, they did not believe. They were skeptical of him. And so they're saying, hey, man, this is your big chance. Go down there and show yourself. Come out of hiding. Be a public figure. But what does Jesus do? What's he, how's he reply? Well, verse number 8, he says, well, you guys go on. I'm not yet ready to go to the festival because my time has not yet come. So Jesus stayed back. He stayed hidden because he knew how they would engage with him if he followed what his brothers said. Uh, Jesus could have put on a magician show for the whole town of Jerusalem. He could have become their great hometown celebrity. But he wasn't interested in a celebrity-level relationship with anybody. He wasn't interested in a Hollywood special effects fan club that was going to start following him. And Jesus still isn't interested in that kind of a relationship. What is he interested in? From the very moment God created us, he made us for a far deeper kind of relationship with him than our five senses are designed to engage in. In God's epistemology, the word epistemology simply simply means a theory of knowing. In God's way of knowing, God did make us physical beings with a marvelous physical brain. And our brain is connected to five senses that are marvelous for feeling, tasting, smelling, thinking, knowing all in the physical world. But God also gave us a deeper capacity than that, a deeper capacity through which knowledge can be obtained that's even more marvelous than that. God gave us a spirit. And you know, the scripture says that God himself is spirit. Uh, God God is beyond this space time physical world that he has made. God lives outside of this physical, this physical world. And so that stands to reason then that this mind of ours, these five senses of ours, we're never going to be able to connect with God uh, because this, they connect us to this physical world. It's great for science. It's great for textbooks. It's great for gathering facts and data. Our minds are wonderful and beautiful and they're God-given for all those reasons. But this mind was not created to help us, to, for us to make a connection with the God who lives beyond this physical world. But you know what? God, that's why God put another avenue, another organ of knowing that's even deeper than our mind called the spirit, called the heart. And God created us so that there could be a spirit, his spirit, capital letters, to our spirit, finite smaller case letters. He wants a a spirit-to-spirit connection with us. He wants a heart-to-heart connection with you and me. So when we come back to John chapter 7, uh, where Jesus was told by his brothers, go down to the feast and just do miracles and and show yourself. Well, here's what Jesus did instead. It says in verse uh, 10, but after his brothers had left for the festival, Jesus also went though he went secretly, staying out of public view. And then verse 14, midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. Now what did Jesus teach? Verse number 37 says this, on that last day, the climax of the festival. Now if there was ever a moment 
when Jesus could have, when he had the crowd and he could have performed miracle after miracle to pull them to his way, that would have been the moment for Jesus to do his greatest miracles right there. But he didn't do any miracle there. Here's what he did instead. He said, if you are thirsty, come to me. Now, obviously, he's talking about a thirst that's deep inside. If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow out from within. And when when he said living water, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. What's happening there is Jesus is wanting to go deeper. He's wanting to go deeper. He wants to connect at a deeper level. And so no miracles, but he's talking, about a, he's talking about a far greater miracle than any external miracle he could have performed. He's talking about a miracle that he can perform inside, deep inside the heart, deep inside the spirit of any person who will come to him believing that he is who he said he was, believing that he is God, believing that he is the Savior. And so... What this really means is that God is not the one who's really hidden. Now, I want to come, I'll come back to that in just a second. I want to make sure that we understand that uh, there's no slander here toward our brains, okay? <laughs> uh, God gave us our brains. He gave us our five senses. And you know, even in the clearest moments, our brains point us toward God. It's just like David in Psalm 8, when David it says there, when I, look at night, at, when I look at the night sky and see the works of your hands, the moon, the stars. You see, David is saying, the fingerprints of God are all over this creation that he has made, this physical creation. And our minds can pick that up and see it and, but, and point us toward that God. But our minds stop short. They can never get us connected in a personal knowledge with that God. And that's where the, that only happens when we come by faith to Christ. And what he does is when we come to him in faith, Christ restores our dead spirits. Why didn't people respond to Christ in the first century? even though he was doing all those great miracles. Why, why wouldn't they respond to him? Why didn't they worship him? Why did they ultimately reject him? Even in the light of seeing all that he did. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, here's the reason, that that organ for knowing God, our spirit, we are, we are spiritually dead down deep inside. And so we try to keep relating to God and discovering him with our, our, our natural senses. It doesn't work that way. It's only when we come to faith in Christ that he restores to life that dead spirit inside of us. It comes to life. And all of a sudden, we are, begin to be filled with an awareness of God that we've never had before. But it's a much deeper level. It's a relationship kind of knowing is what God created us for. And so what this really is saying to us, like I said a moment ago, is that God is not the one that's really hidden here. We confuse our spiritual blindness with what we perceive to be God's being hidden from us. Um, We've been Skyping 
with uh, our little granddaughter, Ada. She's a year and a half old now. And uh, when we were Skyping with her the other day, uh, <clears throat> Jill and I were playing peekaboo with her. And uh, you know how kids that age play peekaboo? Um, they take their hands like this and hold them over their eyes, and they think they've disappeared. <laughs> they think you can't see them. And then you say, where's, where's Ada? She pulls her hands away. Okay, it goes on and on like that. But, but she puts her hands back over her face, like, eyes like this, and in, our, in her view, we've also disappeared. We aren't there anymore. That's the way a year-and-a-half-old child perceives things. But the reality is, even though she has her hands there, Jill and I were still very much, we were still really there. Well, Jesus said that the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the spirit, have been blinded, were spiritually dead, John 12, 40. And humanity, the people in the first century and the people in the 21st century, we're walking around on this planet with our hands up over our spiritual eyes. And we think that God, because of that, because of our blindness, God is hidden. God isn't there. When the fact is, God is very much there. And God is a very, very, very knowable God. He's a very, very, very present God. Very, very present but when, and when we come to faith in Christ, what happens is, by his power, our hands come away. We, we take our hands away from the blindness of our hearts. And God, his awareness, his reality, what were we created for? To know him deeply? We, we understand he is there. And we become filled with an awareness of God that we haven't known before. Um, You know, sometimes we underestimate, I I, I think very often we underestimate the relational ability and the relational skills of God to open himself up to to an individual personally, person to person. Sometimes we almost think of, of God as if he were relationally challenged. As if uh, God is nothing but a, but a big force, a big power in the universe. Uh, and we shortchange God. And, but the reality is that there is no person in the universe more relational and more capable relationally than God. What does it mean to be, have relational skill? What does that mean? Well, a person who has relational skills is a person who is able to open up the depths of their being and share their life transparently. That's what it means to be relationally skilled. Do we think that God is relationally challenged? Do we think that God is limited in his relational skills, his ability to open up himself and reveal and disclose himself to a person? Absolutely not. He's the most, he's the most relational, the most capable of all. And all Jesus was saying when he came into the world is that very fact. He was saying, I don't want, I don't want you disconnected to me because you're all fascinated and entertained by my miracles. He says, I want a relationship with you, a real relationship, the deepest relationship you will ever have in this world. And it's a relationship in which the reality of the other person 
God, in this case, will, his, the awareness of his reality and his presence will fill your heart, will fill your life. It's like Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, that his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are the children of God. And so let's bring this all back to Mordecai and Esther. This is the kind of knowledge of God that gave Mordecai and Esther the courage to trust God when all the visible circumstances of their lives were going from bad to worse because they had a genuine personal awareness of God's presence deep in their lives. It wasn't based on their knowledge of the data of their circumstances. It wasn't, it, it was, it, it wasn't based on what their five senses were in connection with. In fact, if they were to depend, be dependent upon their five senses and what they could see in this physical world, things were horrible for them right then. It looked like they were done for. But you see, that isn't where their faith was connected in God. They were looking for God there. They, were, they had a relationship with God that came out of the depths of their heart because they'd opened their hearts and God revealed himself to them. That's the kind of relationship. Jesus was trying to get at that when he told the people at the, in, in the crowd that day at the feast. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He says, when you do, if you believe in me, it, it'll be like this. It'll be like a river has just started to, to flow inside of your life, down deep inside. He was probably thinking of the Jordan River, Maybe we could think of the Niagara River, powerful river. Now, if you're living your life and there's emptiness deep down inside and there's spiritual deadness down deep inside and all of a sudden, down deep inside, it begins to feel like this huge river has just started to flow. Do you think you'd be able to know that? Do you think you'd be able to experience that? Do you think you'd be able to know the difference of that? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about, the difference that can happen inside of your life if you come to him in faith and trust him in faith. And um, that's how Mordecai and Esther, that's what gave them the courage to know that even when it looked like everything was disintegrating, really God was working behind the scenes, to integrate and pull together from all those things his perfect plan, his perfect will. And the other thing is God is always on time. And so if you're trusting, if you're here this morning and you are trusting God for all the things that are happening in your life right now and you are doing everything proactively that you know to do in the midst of those circumstances at the human level, but you're trusting God, Here's God's promise to you that good things are happening. Even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the fearful, anxiety producing situations, there is a huge, powerful, good thing that's happening behind the scenes. God is even taking all those horrible things and turning them toward your good and His plan and His purpose. But if you're here this morning, and it, does, and it seems to you like God is just hiding. And, and this is keeping you 
from believing that God is really there. Maybe you, maybe you see creation and you get a hint, there must be a God out there. But you are saying to yourself, I need, I need more than that to be convinced that there really is a God out there. Jesus came for you. Maybe you're an honest skeptic, an honest doubter here today. And God likes honest people, even when they're, dealing, even when they're expressing honest doubt. If, if you're here today, and that's your situation, then Jesus Christ extends this invitation to you. He invites you to put him to the test, to come to him in faith and see if he doesn't open up and restore and bring back to life that deeper organ for knowing that he placed inside of you. And when you do that, God will reveal himself person to person down deep inside your life in such a dramatic, powerful way that you will know, I'm not just dreaming this up. I'm not just on some sort of religious kick. This is not just some uh, super excitement, religious excitement that's going to you know, hang on to me for a day or two and then I'll just be back to normal. No, we're talking here about reality and your introduction to the, to the God of all reality that will take place when you come to Christ in faith. That's his promise. And how do we do that? He's the one who died for our sins. That's what separated us and made us spiritually dead in the first place. So we come to him by repenting of those sins, receiving his forgiveness, and that's when he fills our life with his own awareness. And, that way, and then that way, God is not going to be hidden to you anymore. If you're a Christian here this morning, just want to repeat, be assured that the Lord is working behind the scenes in your circumstances to fulfill the promise that he made through the Apostle Paul that all things do work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called by his purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for your care and your love. We're thankful, Father, that um, you have you have moved in such a way to bring us out of our hiding, to heal our to heal that deep part of us, Lord, that can no longer see you, can no longer sense your presence. Father, I pray this morning for any person that's here today that has been searching for you but just doesn't know where to find you. I pray, Father, that today you will speak to their heart and say, I find God when I come to Jesus Christ. And Lord, as they come to you today, you will open your heart up to them as they open up their heart to you and and give them such an experience of your presence and your reality, Lord, that it becomes a settled conviction down deep inside of them for the rest of their days. And I pray for every follower of Christ here this morning who has already come. Lord, there are all kinds of assaults. There are all kinds of uh, pressures and, and things that we face. Lord, that sometimes can just disillusion and discourage. I pray, Lord, for each of us, Lord, to come back to that one foundational fact that we know the presence of God. We have experienced his life. We have experienced his presence. And we hold on to that truth, Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that you'll reveal your presence, reveal your name, reveal your love and your goodness over these next several moments 
as we just present our hearts to you in response, in worship, in praise. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We thank you for your presence here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.